Um, today, there are, if you look at Acts chapter 7, um, you'll notice there are a lot of verses in Acts chapter 7. The reason for that is that this is its own sermon. What we're going to do is we're going to take this sermon, and I want to look at the high points of this. I want to see, well, what is this man, Stephen, trying to communicate, trying to get across as he's opening up um, and unveiling certain stories from the Old Testament for those who would hear? And so what we're going to do today is we're going to kind of overview chapter number seven here, and we're going to see what Stephen is trying to communicate and then how we can take that and apply it to our lives today. What we find as we begin this message, as we come into this scene, I want you to understand what's taking place here. If you were with us last week, we looked at Acts chapter number six, a very short chapter. And in Acts chapter number six, we find that there are certain attempts by the enemy, by Satan, to try to take this early church and to squash the work that is being done. As people are coming to know Jesus, as disciples are being multiplied, we see there are those that begin to um, be used by the enemy to hinder the work. We find that they do this in a couple of ways. You can go back and listen to last week's message, but really quickly we find that there's an attempt to divide very early on. There's an us versus them mentality that begins to take some root within portions of the church. And what what do the apostles say? They say, no, 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 this isn't how this works here. And so they appoint these men and they say, there are needs that need to be met. Yes, absolutely. And so they put them to work. Meeting these needs, making sure that this division doesn't take place, but neither allowing distraction to remove us from the work of reaching people for Jesus. And then finally, we see that the enemy, when he couldn't divide and when he couldn't distract, he seeks to destroy. And so specifically, he zeroes in on this man, Stephen. Stephen is one of the seven that were called, and Stephen wasn't merely one that would go and serve tables, as is the responsibility of the seven here in chapter number six, but he actually goes a step further, and he is boldly preaching and teaching the word of God. And so now critics begin to come up from these different synagogues, and they said, man, this guy is blaspheming. And so they can't find any true witnesses, so they set up false witnesses. And they go and they take Stephen. And in chapter number seven, we find Stephen being gathered in front of the group known as the Sanhedrin. If you've been with us through the study of the book of Acts, this is not the first time that one of the members of the early church has been brought before the Sanhedrin. In this instance, there are false witnesses that are brought up, and they begin to say, this man is speaking blasphemy against this holy place. The Sanhedrin meets within the temple, and so within the, he's speaking evil of the temple. He's speaking evil of the law. Can you believe what this man Stephen is trying to propagate? And so they come, and they bring these accusations before the leaders of the Sanhedrin. And so as the church marches forward, Stephen now is arrested. As he's exercised his gifts, there are those that begin to take issue with all of this. You know what's incredible here is this is, this is Sanhedrin 101. Um, if you want, if you want to, uh, I thought about putting this on a screen, but I was like, ah, you know what? But Sanhedrin 101, this is, this is the way that Pharisees and Sadducees, that they operate, isn't it? If you can't win the argument, you attack the person. And so that's what's happening here. Is they can't come at Stephen with the gospel, they can't come at Stephen with the word of God, and then so they go, he's a blasphemer. And he's done this and he's done that. And they bring up false accusations. Watch this as we come into chapter seven, verse number one. The high priest, he looks at Stephen and he hears this accusation and he says, are these things so? Reminder, this is the same high priest that crucified Jesus. (laughs) What does he say? Brothers and fathers, hear me. 
the God of glory appeared to our father, Abraham, when he was in, what's that word there? Mesopotamia. You say, well, what's the significance there? One of the things, if you notice, notice the the title of the sermon today, places, places. The Jewish people, the Jewish leaders of this day, they said, God has to work through the temple. God has to work here. God has to work in this way. And Stephen says, wait a minute. That has never been and it never will be true. And so he begins this message saying, hey guys, you know Abraham, we all like Abraham, right? God came to him where? Mesopotamia. Before he lived in Haran and said to him, go out from your land and from your kindred and go into the land that I will show you. Then he went out from the land of the Chaldeans and he lived in Haran. After his father died, God removed him from there into this land in which you are now living. Yet he gave him no inheritance in it, not even a foot's length, but promised to give it to him as a possession to his offspring after him, although he had no child. God spoke to this effect that his offering, offspring, excuse me, would be sojourners in a land. It means temporary dwellers in a land belonging to others who would enslave them and afflict them 400 years. I will judge the nation that they serve, said God. And after that, they shall come out and worship me in this place. And he gave him the covenant of circumcision. So Abraham became the father of Isaac, circumcised him on the eighth day. And Isaac became the father of Jacob and Jacob of the 12 patriarchs. And so what we find immediately just out of the gate, Stephen's making this argument. And he's saying, listen here, listen here. Jesus is better than the place. Jesus is better than the place, but he doesn't leave it there. He actually breaks it down and he says, you guys remember Abraham? When did God come and speak to Abraham, the great ancestor of Israel? Did God speak to Abraham in the land of Israel? No. Where did God speak to him? Mesopotamia. And where did God lead him to from Mesopotamia? Into Haran. Also, for those, I get... Ancient Near East geography is not a common topic, right, of study. Haran, just short version, not Israel. And so he's saying, this isn't what's happened at all. But he says there's this call and there's this affliction that's going to come. And then the people are going to remove from the land. And what he's saying is this. If the land is so important that it is the thing, then why wasn't Abraham having an inheritance in it? And so that's the argument he begins with, but he doesn't end there. He continues. And the patriarchs, jealous of Joseph, sold him into Egypt. If you're not familiar with this story, Abraham has a son of promise named Isaac. He and his wife give birth. Uh, They're well over 90 years of age at the time. And now they give birth to this child, Isaac. Isaac has two sons, Jacob and Esau. Jacob is the son that the promise continues through. And then Jacob has 12 sons that become the tribes of Israel. Joseph of these sons, Joseph was hated by his brothers because he was the favorite of his father. And these brothers took Joseph and they, uh, they made up a story saying that he was murdered or killed by these wolves. He was devoured in the wilderness. They bring it to Jacob and they all mourn for Joseph. But in reality, what's happening? What's taking place? They've now sold him into slavery in Egypt. They've betrayed their own brother 
And so what takes place? What's happening here? Joseph is sold into slavery in Egypt. But verse number nine, watch this. God was with him. And he rescued him out of all his afflictions, gave him favor and wisdom before Pharaoh, king of Egypt, who made him ruler over Egypt and over all his household. Now there came a famine throughout all Egypt and Canaan, great affliction, and our fathers could find no food. But when Jacob heard that there was grain in Egypt, he sent out our fathers on their first visit. And on the second visit, Joseph made himself known to his brothers. And Joseph's family became known to Pharaoh. And Joseph sent and summoned Jacob, his father, and all his kindred, 75 persons in all. And Jacob went down into Egypt, and he died, he and our fathers. And they were carried back to Shechem and laid in the tomb that Abraham had bought for a sum of silver from the sons of Hamor and Shechem. But as the time of promise drew near, verse 17, which God had granted to Abraham, the people increased and multiplied in Egypt until there arose over Egypt another king who did not know Joseph. So what you can see here, if you're, if you're following along, this story, he's telling it at an accelerated pace. If you want to read these stories in their detail, you can go to the book of Genesis, and you can read through Genesis, especially beginning in chapter number 12 through the end of the book. The author of Genesis gives it to us in about 38 chapters. Here you're getting in less than 38 verses, okay? Cliff notes. But what is he saying? He's saying, just like God said these things were going to happen, they've happened, and they've happened, and they've happened. And now as Joseph was sold into slavery in Egypt, where is God working now? He had worked in Mesopotamia and Haran. Now he's working in Egypt. Because can God's work be confined to any singular place? Absolutely not. Absolutely not. And so now J Joseph is sold in Egypt. And after his death, the children of Israel are still in Egypt. And generations came and generations went. And for years and years and years, the Egyptians treated the Hebrews well. They remembered Joseph. They remembered the work that he had done. They remembered the reason that these peoples were in their midst. But after a couple generations, a king ascended to the throne who had no memory of Joseph. And so what did he do? He looked around and he saw these others who were dwelling in their midst. And he enslaved them, brought them into subjugation to the people of Egypt, used them as tools to accomplish his nation's desires. And we can say how wicked it was, and it was. And yet God, in his all-knowing omniscience, omnipotence, omnipresence, allowed for this to take place. Why? Because in the middle of this, this people of Israel, those that he had called out, are multiplying, are growing, and he is about to do some incredible things in their midst. Verse 17, we see this as the time of promise drew near, which God had granted to Abraham. The people increased and they multiplied in Egypt until there arose over Egypt another king who did not know Joseph. He dealt, he dealt shrewdly with our race, forced our fathers to expose their infants so that they would not be kept alive. At this time, Moses was born and he was beautiful in God's sight. And he was brought up for three months in his father's house. And when he was exposed, Pharaoh's daughter adopted him and brought him up as her own son. 
And Moses was instructed in all the wisdom of the Egyptians. He was mighty in words and deeds. When he was 40 years old, it came into his heart to visit his brothers, the children of Israel. Seeing one of them being wronged, he defended the oppressed man and avenged him by striking down. He killed the Egyptian. He supposed that his brothers would understand that God was giving them salvation by his hand, but they did not understand. And on the following day, he appeared to them as they were quarreling and tried to reconcile them, saying, men, you're brothers. Why do you wrong each other? And so this same Moses, who had now just slain an Egyptian for the purpose of defending his brothers, the fellow Israelites, the fellow Hebrews, now he sees these two Hebrew men fighting. And so he goes and says, guys, you're brothers. Why are you behaving this way? But the man who was wronging his neighbor thrust him aside, saying, who made you a ruler and judge over us? Do you want to kill me as you killed the Egyptian yesterday? And so his sin had been found out. Taking this into his own hands had been found out. At this retort, Moses fled, became an exile in the land of Midian, where he became the father of two sons. And so now we've just read through, we've just read through a great portion of the lives of three of the greatest men in Israel's history. Three of the greatest men in Israel's history. We're actually not done here with Moses. Verse 30, when 40 years had passed, this is another 40 years, an angel appeared to him in the wilderness of Mount Sinai, in a flame of fire in a bush. When Moses saw it, he was amazed at the sight. He drew near to look. There came the voice of the Lord. I am the God of your fathers, God of Abraham, of Isaac, and of Jacob. Moses trembled and dared not to look. Then the Lord said to him, take off the sandals from your feet for the place where you are standing is holy ground. I've surely seen the affliction of my people who are in Egypt and I've heard their groaning. I've come down to deliver them and now come, I will send you to Egypt. So the lives of these three men that God had been calling, that God was using in the establishment of his people. The people that Israel as a nation, they look to and they revere these men and they revere the temple. And what is Stephen doing in these first three stories? He's pointing out over and over and over again, hey, God used Abraham here. God used Joseph here. God used Moses here. And you know where none of those places were that he's listing? Israel. None of them are in that geographic location. None of them were here at the temple that you've accused me, Stephen, is saying of blaspheming. God was working long before this temple was built and in places that are far away from here. And so what we see is we see over and over and over again, God working in places that are not Israel. And then Moses, whom they rejected, saying, who made you a ruler and a judge? This man God sent as both ruler and redeemer by the hand of the angel who appeared to him in the bush. He led them out, performing wonders and signs in Egypt, at the Red Sea, the wilderness for 40 years. This is the Moses who said to the Israelites, God will raise up for you a prophet like me. From your brothers. And so in all of this, what is, what is Stephen doing? See, back in the days of Moses and then later in the Psalms, there was a promise that a better Moses would one day come. One who would go beyond what Moses was ever capable of doing. One who would not merely receive the law, but one who would fulfill the law. And here Stephen says, hey, that same one has come to you. And his name is Jesus Christ. That's why he says it this way. He says, this is that Moses. This is that Moses that was speaking, that was being, you were being told was going to come. 
And over and over and over again, he's telling this story. But what's the point of the story? Why is Stephen giving this message in this way? Because he's trying to help them understand that places are merely tools while God is the craftsman. The places are merely tools. God is the craftsman. What's the point? God can work anywhere he chooses. God can work anywhere that he chooses. There's not a place that God cannot work and accomplish his mission. And so over and over and over again, Stephen is telling, this is coming, this is happening, this is how it was. And so he says, Jesus, he's better than this place, but not only is he better than the place, watch what he says in verse 37. The Moses that, who said in the, to the Israelites, God will raise up for you a prophet like me from your brothers. This is the one who was in the congregation in the wilderness with the angel who spoke to him at Mount Sinai with their fathers. He received living oracles to give to us. Our fathers refused to obey him. Speaking of Moses, but thrust him aside. And in their hearts, they turned to Egypt saying to Aaron, make for us gods who will go before us. And for this Moses who led us out of the land of Egypt, we do not know what has become of him. They made a calf in those days. They offered a sacrifice to the idol and were rejoicing in the works of their hands. But God turned away and gave them over to worship the host of heaven. As it is written in the book of the prophets, did you bring to me slain beasts and sacrifices during the 40 years in the wilderness, O house of Israel? You took up the tent of Moloch and the star of your God, Rephan. The images that you made to worship, I will send you into exile beyond Babylon. And so he's pointing out this pattern of behavior that has taken place over and over and over again. You see, these men that he's speaking to, they had, they had just venerated, they had lifted up their forefathers, those who had came before, those who had seen these works, and they said, oh, our fathers did this, and our fathers did that. And Stephen's coming around, and Stephen's saying, hey, can I tell you something about your fathers? Um, they rejected Moses, and they built idols in the wilderness. That's who your fathers are. Your fathers are the one that God had to come back around to and say, hey, you just came out of slavery, and now I'm already going to have to send you back into exile. There was never a time that Israel was just like, yes, Lord, let's go in that direction. You can go through all of Israel's history, and there were moments that there were kings and there were leaders who were in place to help try to enforce these things that God had told the people to do. But every opportunity that the people had to fail... The people had to reject God. They took it. They took it. Every chance they got, we're out of here. We're done. We're not going to stick by this. We're opting out over and over and over again. And these were people that claimed to be religious, right? But what we see here is we see that now Jesus, he's better than this place. And then even as he brings this law into it, he says, you've rejected this law over and over again, but Jesus has fulfilled this law. We know through the study of the New Testament scriptures that Jesus fulfilled the law. He said it himself in Matthew chapter five. I didn't come to destroy the law. I came to fulfill it. And so whereas Moses brought this law, Jesus is better than the law. He's superior to it. And then we find that he breaks this down in verse number 44 because he's all kind of coming to the point. Our fathers had the tent in the wilderness. This is what's known as today the tabernacle. This is a place of worship similar to the temple, but it was a, a temporary dwelling place. 
It was a tent that was set up with poles and with uh, curtains and with things like that. Our fathers had the tents of witness in the wilderness, just as he who spoke to Moses directed him to make it according to the pattern that he had seen. Our fathers, in turn, brought it in with Joshua when they dispossessed the nation. So this is when the people of Israel finally came into the land that was promised them, that God drove out before our fathers. So it was until the days of David, who found favor in the sight of God and asked to find a dwelling place for the God of Jacob. And so this is now David. If you remember with us over the summer, we studied through David's life. And there's a point in David's life where he said, God, I want to build a temple for you. How is it that I'm living in this palace and you have no permanent place to dwell? And so did God come to David and say, David, build me a temple? No, David said, God, I want to build you a temple. Was there anything wrong with this request of David's? No, not necessarily. We never see it pointed as being wrong or sinful. But God's not the one who came and said, thou shalt build a temple. But God relented and said, I will let your son do it. I'll let your son build it. And he gave instructions. If you're going to build it, this is how it needs to be built. But what we find here throughout, watch this in verse number 46, uh, 47. It was Solomon who built a house for him. This is the son of David. Yet the Most High does not dwell in houses made by hands, as the prophet says. Heaven is my throne. The earth is my footstool. What kind of house will you build for me, says the Lord? Or what is the place of my rest? Did not my hand make all these things? And so what does he say? He says, you're going to build me a house? Okay. I mean, it's almost, it's almost like, well, that's cute, Right? I mean, heaven's my throne, earth is my footstool, and you're like, uh, okay, all right. But what is the point that he's getting at? Is he attempting to defame the temple? To, to, to point out and to say the temple is worthless or doesn't have a purpose or a function? No. Is he trying to say that about the land of Israel here? No. That's not the point. But here's the point. This is what I, got, I want you to understand. You say, you say, okay, Pastor Nate, where are you at? What am I supposed to be hearing here? Listen very carefully to this. Listen very carefully to this. The place intended to enlarge the knowledge of God was misused to confine the knowledge of God. You follow, you follow what's happening here? The place that was intended to enlarge to send out, to be a declaration of God's knowledge was now being misused and mishandled to keep the knowledge of God secret. The thing that was supposed to be a tool for the glory of God to go out was being utterly and totally misused. And so when these men heard that Stephen was speaking these things, they said, this is blasphemy. In reality, what Stephen was saying is saying, this place has walked so far away from the reason that it was built. What a scathing thing to say. Do you see now why they were mad at Stephen? These are the temple leaders. And they're going, what do you mean we're walking away from what God had had planned for this thing? What do you mean that we're doing stuff that's outside of what God had intended? What do you mean? Their feelings were hurt. They were seen. They were called out. And they didn't like what Stephen was saying. 
But what he comes to is he says, listen, this place, David's proposal was that there be a place where the glory of God may be magnified out of. And now you have twisted it and you have manipulated it and you have pulled it so that we're, you're sitting here basically worshiping the temple itself, forgetting about the God who allowed you to build this thing in the first place. One excellent example of this that actually Stephen doesn't quote here in the book of Acts. If you go back to the book of Numbers, and you don't have to turn there, but you can go read it for yourselves later. There's a time in Israel's wandering. Moses is leading the people still, and it was one of the many, 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 many times that the people said, Moses, we don't want you anymore. We're just going to go do our own thing. God said, no, 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 no. I'm not done with you yet. So God actually allows, he sends um, these, these serpents into the camp of Israel. They begin to bite the Israelites as they're wandering in the wilderness. How many of you guys like snakes? How many of you guys, like, that's literally, like, horror story kind of stuff, and, like, I'm not going to sleep tonight because you told me about this. Anyone? All right. Um, this is what happens. They begin to go throughout this camp, and if you can imagine, they're living in tents, all right? And so there's no, like, safe place for them from these snakes that begin to come out and bite, and people begin to get sick. And so as this is all taking place, Moses is pleading to God on their behalf, saying, listen, I know they're idiots, but forgive them, please. That should be our prayer sometimes, right? God, I know I'm an idiot. Forgive me anyways. But man, that's what happens. And God says to Moses, he says, fine, here's what you're going to do. You're going to go and you're going to fashion a serpent out of bronze. You're going to place it onto a staff and you're going to go out among the people. Whoever looks to the serpent will survive, they will be healed as they cast their eyes on this serpent. Can I tell you a little secret? There was nothing special about the serpent itself. The serpent wasn't the point. God was the one who did the work. And in fact, if you go to the New Testament, John chapter 3, Jesus is speaking, and there's one verse we all know in chapter number 3, or many, I shouldn't say we all, but many of us would know John chapter 3, verse 16. Well, if you fast forward just a couple verses before, Jesus says this to Nicodemus. He says, even as Moses has lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, even so must the son of man be lifted up. And so he compares himself to the serpent. You and I, we're like, we're the sinners. The sin is killing us, separating us from God, putting our destiny as eternal condemnation. And yeah, when we look at Jesus as he is lifted up, we can be healed too. And so Jesus compares himself to the serpent in the wilderness. But you know what happened many years later? Many years later, this serpent was actually kept by Israel. If you fast forward to the book, uh, to the the Kings, um, later in the Old Testament, hundreds of years after Moses, hundreds of years, more likely about a thousand years after Moses, This serpent is still around, but now a group of people have taken and they begin to actually worship the serpent. You say, well, that's dumb. I know. And yet here we are. They begin to worship the serpent instead of worshiping the God who provided it and gave it and worked through it. And so what happens The king is a godly king at this time. And so he goes and he finds this thing. They've named it Nehushtan. They've given the serpent a name. Don't name it. You get attached to it, right? They've given the serpent a name. This is a a god that's been given to us, and he heals. 
And they took and they destroyed this thing because what was meant as a tool for God's work has now become the thing itself. No, no, that's idolatry. That's wicked. That's not okay. And can I tell you, in your lives, you can probably name places and name people and name things that God has used to help you to grow in your faith. If we were to talk about different times in your life that your faith matured, you could probably identify people and places and things and ways that God has done this stuff. And that is awesome. But can I tell you, the moment that you begin to worship those things or think more highly of those things or place those things at a higher premium than God himself, that thing that was a good thing has now become a God thing. It's called idolatry. And it must be repented of. And so what is Stephen calling these leaders in Israel to do? He's saying, guys, we have become idolaters. We've looked at this, this temple and yes, it's magnificent. Yes, it's beautiful. Yes, God allowed us to build this, but this thing is actually preventing us from seeing what God has come to do. Because instead of saying Jesus is better than they begin to cling to the temple itself thereby rejecting the son of God in favor of the site where God had worked. Understand this with me. Places don't save people. Jesus does. Places don't save people. Jesus does. And I could have put any number of words in there instead of places. We could have said programs. We could have said churches. We could have said people or things. We could have filled in so many blanks here. This message just so happens to be very narrowly focused on the place. Places don't save people. Jesus does. You see, so often we can get we can get, get bent out of shape by this thing that means a lot to us because God used it in the past. And listen, we have emotional connections to those things. And that's normal and that's natural. You know, we like places because uh, we are human beings and we exist in places. If you no longer exist in a place, you no longer exist. We don't know life outside of places. And so places have special meanings to us. And that's normal and that's natural. But when a place begins to grow in our affections, then it begins to cannibalize and begins to steal attention and affection from Jesus Christ. God forbid. God forbid when anything comes to replace the desire that we have for Jesus himself. And so Stephen gets up and boldly he speaks and he points out in verse number 51, he says, you stiff-necked people uncircumcised in hearts and ears. What is he saying? He's saying you're stubborn and you're unconverted. That's what he's telling them here. The idea of being uncircumcised in hearts means you're lost. He says, as your, you always resist the Holy Spirit as your fathers did, so do you. Which of the prophets did your fathers not persecute? They killed those who announced beforehand the coming of the righteous one, whom you have now betrayed and murdered. So he's saying, they killed the announcers, they killed the messengers, and you killed the guy. You who received the law as delivered by angels and did not keep it. He's saying, you've been given a great privilege and you have wasted it. Did you hear that? 
you who received the law as delivered by angels, your theology is right. And you missed the point. How scathing. How scathing this is. And what is their response? Well, their, their response ought to be repentance. Oh, man. Maybe there's something to what this guy is saying. And there were those that had already responded and repented. But what is their response instead? When they heard these things, they were enraged. They ground their teeth at him. But he, full of the Holy Spirit, gazed into heaven, saw the glory of God, Jesus standing at the right hand of God, and said, Behold, I see the heavens open, the Son of Man standing at the right hand of God. But they cried out with a loud voice, and they stopped their ears. They said, We don't even want to hear this anymore. And they rushed together at him. Then they cast him out of the city and stoned him. They took these rocks, and they began to toss them onto Stephen breaking his bones, taking his life. The witnesses, they took their garments. They laid them down at the feet of a young man named Saul. And as they were stoning Stephen, he called out, Lord Jesus, receive my spirit. And falling to his knees, he cried out with a loud voice, Lord, do not hold this sin against them. Powerful words right there. When he had said this, he fell asleep. You see, the natural man within us hates the truth. You ever notice that sometimes your first response when someone even graciously and lovingly wants to tell you the truth, your first response is anger towards those individual. How dare you say that thing that's 100% true? And yeah, that's what's happening here. They didn't want to hear what Stephen had said. So much so they closed their ears to him. And here we find this young man named Saul, among others, witnessing and watching Stephen. What does Stephen do as he's he's now, his body breaking under the weight of these rocks that are being tossed his way? Does he say, God's going to get you. Vengeance is his. No, he says what? He says, Lord Jesus, receive my spirit. And then he says, Lord, do not hold the sin against them. And when he said this, He fell asleep. Witness Stephen. As he calls out, notice what his hope is and is not in. His hope isn't even in, it's not in his life being spared. It's not even in revenge against these who are taking it. What is his hope? His hope is in Jesus. Even in the very end, his hope is in Jesus. You see, if his hope were in the temple, well, he's a long way away from it now. He's been drugged outside the city by a mob. If his hope were in anything other than Jesus, it's been removed from him. And yet at these last moments, he can say, Lord Jesus, receive my spirit. This morning, what's your hope in? What are you looking to? Is there a thing that God used in the past and you've said, okay, I've set this thing up and, and man, I'm upset that God's not using that thing anymore. God uses the things and the places and the people that he wants and desires to use. That's his discretion and discernment, not ours. At the end of the day, are we at peace with this? Because we have to understand that the hope that we have is not the hope of an individual. It's not the hope of a place. It's not the hope of a denomination. It's not the hope of any single thing. The hope is Jesus Christ and Jesus alone. His death, his burial, his resurrection for our sin.